0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. How about reach for your Bibles with me this morning? Reach for your Bibles. I hope you have one with you. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you this morning. But if you'll turn to the Gospel of John with me, the Gospel of John this morning in chapter four, the Gospel of John chapter four. We're going to preach on a topic this morning that uh, I think is fitting. You know, I don't do many thematics as far as preaching along with uh, what season we happen to be in, but this morning this is Another part of our series for such a time as this and talking about the vision of the church and our purpose in the church and what we're supposed to be doing. And it ties in lovely with the weekend we happen to be on, because if you know anything about the gospel of John and the the fourth chapter of that gospel, you'll know that it talks about a living water and there being life, being life that's given. So if you have found John chapter four and verse one, if you'd be so kind as to stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. And let's read this word together this morning, and it says this in John 4, chapter 1. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, set thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our time together in Sunday school, through our fellowship, through our singing, Father, through our remembrance of those who gave their life, that we might have the freedom this morning together in this place, unencumbered and unthreatened by the government or those around us. Now, Father, as we focus on your word I ask us of you, that you tune our hearts to you, that you make very little of me, very much of you, that you take over this body, this mouth, this mind, and you use it for your honor and your glory alone. And we pray that this morning in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. I find it funny, I'm preaching on living water this morning, and I feel like my mouth is a desert. I feel like my mouth is a desert. I have a question for you. Have you ever been so thirsty that you felt like you were about to faint? Have you ever worked so hard and been so thirsty that you felt like you were about to faint? Okay, me either. I don't work that hard either. I just a preacher, just an hour a week. That's all it takes. So, have, you ever, have you ever just wanted a sip of something because your, your mouth was so dry? Have you, ever, have you ever got up to speak and it's just like your, your lips were stuck together and your teeth and your it was you just wanted something to drink? Let me ask you this spiritually. Have you ever been in your spiritual life in a place that felt so dry that you just desired a little refreshment? You ever been there? Yeah, we all have. We know what? There's good news. There's good news in this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ is the living water. That's the good news this morning. Jesus Christ is the living water. And drinking from that living water, the fountain of, of water from the well of living water will change your life Forever. And here in John, we see several ways, several ways that drinking of the living water will change our life. I'll go ahead and tell you this morning, you won't hear several. You're going to hear one and maybe all of it. And I kind of doubt it. But there are several ways in this passage that it talks about this living water. This living water being everything to us. The very first thing I noticed as I read this passage, as I looked through this passage, it says that living water changes our way. Have you ever needed a direction change in your life? You ever needed one? I drive a lot. I drive a lot. And a lot of times I'll put on the the GPS just for fun. I, I change mine to an Australian accent, which I find to be more entertaining for some reason. And occasionally I get this voice as I'm driving. And you know what it says. <laughs> Recalculate. <laughs> you ever got that? You ever got that? A- have you ever known where you're going? And it says recalculate, so you argue with it? Am I the only one? Once in a while, I'll tell it, lady. You got no idea where you're going. I know where I'm going. Don't tell me to recalculate. And I'll look over there on the dash. It'll say, I got about 20 minutes to get where I'm going. I'll show her my ways quicker. And about 45 minutes later, I get where I'm going and wish I had to recalculate it. But, you know, sometimes we need a change in our ways. Jesus and his disciples here in this particular passage, just to set the context for you, uh, they had traveled, uh, they were traveling there uh, north from Judea and they they were headed towards Galilee. If If you have a picture of Israel in your mind, it's just a thin strip of land that... It has an ocean on one side and the opposite side. And right down the middle runs this this river, this river Jordan, which divides up the land. And there were two routes, uh, two routes, actually three that could be taken to get from the Judean region up to the Galilean region without having to cut through the middle part, which was a Samaritan region. They could have gone out and around and by the coast, which was not a very uh, popular route. There was a, a route that went up, which most Jews took, and they would they would head up through uh, Judea and they would cross over the the river jordan uh over the river jordan there into uh, perea and then they would go up the side of the river jordan either cross back over to jordan or most likely take the sea of galilee and they'd go across the sea of galilee into the galilean region that was the more common area but there was a much more direct route There was a much more direct route come straight out of judea head directly north straight through samaria into galilee galilee but jews avoided that route They avoided that route because they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Samaritans. They would rather take a longer journey with more difficulty than to go through a country full of people that they didn't like. (laughs) Boy, that sounds a lot like America sometimes today, doesn't it? That's a sermon for another time. But notice what it says in verse 4. Notice what it says in verse 4. It says, but he needed to go through Samaria. I tell you that to set up that verse. Because to Jesus, he needed to go to Samaria. He had a particular reason that he wanted to go to Samaria. And the reason that he wanted to go to Samaria gives us the first principle of how living water changes our way. See, Jesus, first and foremost, meets us exactly where we are in life. Have you ever noticed? Jesus meets us where we are. You see, the Jews absolutely despised, absolutely despised the Samaritans. Tensions had started all the way back, all the way back after the rule of Solomon in in this particular country. When the country was split politically and the capital of that northern region was actually uh, made to be Samaria. That's when it all started. The region was taken captive by the Syrians back about 700-722 B.C., somewhere in that neighborhood. It was after that time that the Samaritans started to to bring in other people and there started to be this intermarrying inside of of the Samaritan region, this intermarrying. So the inhabitants of of this Samaritan region were, were no longer pure Jews, pure Jews and see for the for the Jews that was an issue for the Jews that was an issue you remember the warnings from the old testament he said you're going to be among the people but don't intermarry you're you're my chosen people don't do that for the Jews that became an issue to them so big of an issue that they wouldn't even set foot in the country unless they had to unless there was a reason that they they had to go that way yet Jesus said i need as the King James says, I believe I must needs go to that country. I must needs go. Why did he need to go to Samaria? Some say it was because it was the shortest route. He was about doing his father's business. He wanted to get to Galilee to take care of that which God had told him to do as quickly as possible. He wanted to take the shortest route so he wouldn't be wasting time crossing rivers and seas and going by the seashore. He wanted to go direct so that he wouldn't be stopped or hindered by other things because there was something that he needed to take care of in Galilee. There was a purpose. He was headed to Galilee. That's a viable explanation. But I think the story tells us there's something different. Yes, there was a viable, important thing that he had to do in Galilee. But there was a more important thing that he had to do in a city called Sychar. A more important thing that he had to do in Sychar. See, Jesus had a divine appointment. He had a divine appointment with a woman, a Samaritan woman in Sychar, that she didn't even know she had signed up for the appointment yet. (laughs) She didn't even know. See, he had this divine appointment to meet her there at a well, at a place that she was very familiar with, a place that that she had seen many times, more than likely every day. And Jesus was going to meet her where she was. Aren't you glad that Jesus meets us where we are? Aren't you glad that he meets you where you are? See, Jesus came to where you were to save you. There's nothing that you have to do. To deserve salvation, there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. there is nowhere that you must go to get salvation other than Jesus Christ and guess what? there is nowhere that you can run <laughs> to avoid God there is nowhere that you can hide that Jesus won't find you. See Romans five eight tells us, but God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that Jesus meets us where we are. I'm so glad he didn't look down from heaven and say, there's one that is so sinful. I want nothing to do with him. I am so glad he didn't say that young man doesn't care to come to my house. I'm not going to his house. I am so glad. That Jesus looked down from heaven and said he might be a sinner, but I love him. I'm going to go where he is. See, Jesus died on a cross to pay the price for my sins while I was yet in sin and enjoying it. I didn't have to change to get him to come. I didn't have to beckon to get him to show up. He chose to come from the portals of heaven and crawl upon that cross and die for my sins while I was yet a sinner. I'm so glad He comes to where we are. See, God decided in eternity past that He would send His only begotten Son to demonstrate His love for us by paying the penalty for our sin. It's a Bible verse we learned when we were that big in Bible school. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. See, God chose to send His Son for me, a sinner, And for you, a sinner. While we were yet sinners, he came to where we were to save us. God doesn't require us to make a way for him. He made a way for us. He's given the most precious gift that's ever been given. His only begotten son for me and for you. God has made a way. And the way has come to us. I'm so glad that the first principle we see as we look at this story, as we look at the fact that the living water changes our way, is that Christ meets us. Jesus meets us right where we are. But you know, there's a second principle I noticed. Jesus meets us how we are. Jesus meets us how we are. See, I notice in verse 7 it says this, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, came to draw water, the story is told us there in the sixth verse that there was this well and that Jesus had been wearied from his journey and that he sat by this well and that it was about the sixth hour. It was about the sixth hour, which would make it high noon in their time frame. It would make it high noon. And it says that this woman was coming to draw water in verse 7. To many, you would read over and not think much about that until you thought about how hot it would be at 12 noon, how late in the day it would have been to go gather water at 12 noon. While we were in Haiti, I saw them every day go to gather water. There was a lot of them in the group that didn't get to see it. It was only a couple of us. The rest of them were still in bed. They got up. They got up at 7.30 or 8 o'clock, but they missed the water gathering because the water gathering was done first thing in the morning because they needed it to start their day. They wanted to get it while it was cool. Yet it says that this woman came at high noon to to get water. It's obvious that the woman had a physical need in her life. She needed water. (laughs) But for for Jesus, there was a much deeper need in the woman's life than this water. And we see the interaction in the story. The first need we see in the woman's life is really her need for acceptance. We see that as she comes to the well in the middle of the day at high noon. High noon was an unusual time, an unusual time for her to be out doing that sort of thing. That was normally done first thing in the morning, yet we see this woman coming at midday and just showing up at, at the well. It kind of gives us a picture of this woman. See, this woman seemed to be an outcast even in her own community. Even in her own community she was an outcast. She was an outcast from the others there. She had had come at this particular time so that no one else would be there and she could avoid probably some of the ridicule that came with being in their presence. She had come at the time no one was there so that she didn't have to listen to them talk about her as if she wasn't present. She had come at high noon so that she wouldn't have to see the eye rolls as they looked at her. Later in the story, we see some more about our life that sheds some light on this, but she seemed to be an outcast in her own community. And we see in the second part of that seventh verse that I read, it says, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, when this woman arrives at the well, I'm sure as she walked up, and she saw this man sitting next to the well, her heart probably sank. Her heart probably sank. She was counting on being there all alone. You ever been there? You ever been where there's something that you desire, that you know you need, something you want to go to? There's just something in your life that you just need desperately, but you want to go all by yourself. You don't want anybody else to be there. You've had all the noise you can have around it. You just want to be there by yourself. You see, maybe she couldn't take the ridicule or the gossip anymore. Maybe she felt like everything and everybody in the world around her was against her. Every time she saw someone coming in her mind, maybe she thought, what are they going to say to me this time? Every time she walked near a crowd and, and the conversation suddenly ceased, maybe she wondered in her mind, what were they saying about me? You see, every time she came up to the well, the others would quickly leave because they didn't even want to be in her presence. But Jesus, Jesus sitting next to the whale, this Jewish man, looks at her as she walks up to the whale. He says, give me a drink. I wonder what ran through her mind. I wonder what ran through her mind. She didn't know who this Jesus was. I wonder if she immediately expected ridicule. Isn't that what happens with us? We see someone that we know is involved in ridicule or talking about us, and we see him, and the first thing we expect out of them is that. It could, couldn't you just imagine as she walks up and she sees this Jewish man sitting next to the well that the first thought of her mind was, oh, no, not today. Not today. I wonder if she expected him, as he asked for a drink, to then ridicule her for it taking so long. Or maybe to fuss about the temperature of the water that came out of the well that, that she gave him. Or maybe even to take the cup of water and throw it in her face and say, I'd never drink water from a Samaritan woman. I wonder from the back of her mind if that's what she expected from this man sitting next to the well. I wonder if she braced herself for the attack. See, so you can look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is was it that you... Being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman. See, you notice she starts off on the defensive. She starts off on the fish. She decides to point out the obvious to him, to take away all those points of contention that he may use. She decided to go ahead and talk about the great big elephant in the room. She decided to go ahead and say, look, I'm not only a Samaritan, but I'm a woman. What are you, a Jewish man, doing even talking to me? She decided instead of waiting for the ridicule, she'd just throw it out on the table. She decided to point out the obvious. She believed in her mind that he thought her to be a lesser person than he was because she was a Samaritan and because she was a woman. And she just throws it out on the table. She was probably hoping that bringing up what she assumed would be what he would say to her, that Maybe he would just give up and go away and she could go about her business. Maybe by bringing up the obvious point, he would just give up because it was no fun picking on someone who had already brought up the point. Yet it wasn't those differences that Jesus saw in the woman. Notice his eyes didn't notice those differences. He didn't care that she was a different race. He didn't care that she was a woman, that her gender was different. What Jesus cared about was that she had a soul that was thirsting to death, that he was the living water. What he cared about is that without the living water, she would die in sin. He didn't care about the color of her skin. He didn't care about her economics. He didn't care about her gender. He cared about her eternity. And her eternity is not attached to her skin color, the amount of money she has, the home she was raised in, or the choices that she had made in life. Eternity was tied to one thing. Did her something to Jesus? Jesus answered her there in verse 10. In verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus meets her where she is in life and how she is in life and gives her an eternal answer to her problem. See, he went to where she was and went to her how she was and he gave her an answer that would change all of her eternity. Just ask and I will give you the living water was his answer. Just ask, and I will give. But but notice her response. Here she is, stunned, I'm sure, because he didn't ridicule her, and a little confused by what he said. So notice the response that she gives in verse 11. She says, Sir, you you have nothing to draw with. And in case you didn't know this, well, it's kind of deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it him himself, and as well as his sons and his livestock? She immediately turns to her physical problem. She hears Jesus say, If you ask, I'll give you water that's going to last for eternity. She immediately says, How? You don't have a bucket. You've got no rope. Don't you know it's deep? Hold on. Jacob gave us the well. Do you know more than Jacob does? She wants to know if he can get the water from the well. And she wants to have it come to her so that she has, does not have to go there anymore. She doesn't have to go there anymore. She wants to know if his knowledge about getting water would keep her from having to come to Jacob's well. If there was a way that she could get water and not be in this place with these people that come, she's all in. But she's still thinking about her physical need, her physical need. But look at Jesus' response in 13. Jesus answered and says to her, whoever drinks of this water, they're going to get thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus answers our physical question with a spiritual response. He says, I know. I know you're thirsty. I know you have to come get water. I know it's important for your survival that you have water. But there's something you don't know. It's more important for your survival that your inner soul, your inner being is filled with the living water. There's something more important in your life than this thirst that you have physically. And Jesus says, Jesus says to her that the water that I give will become a fountain inside of you that springs up in the everlasting life. She immediately sees the answer to her problem. She immediately wants the answer, but she still doesn't understand the spiritual ramifications. How do we know that? How do we know that? Because in verse fifteen, she says, "This, sir, give me this water." She places an answer to his, or a question to him, but a request. She says, "Sir, give me this water." Notice that she still only sees him as a Jewish man sitting next to the whale when she says, Sir. She doesn't recognize who's in her presence. You know, in this world we live in today, there are many that don't recognize Jesus as God. They see him as a man. They see him as equal to a Muhammad. They see him as just another prophet. But let me tell you this. That man sitting next to the whale... Is the living water. And when she looked at him, she said, Sir, give me this water. She follows it with why she wanted it. She says, That I may not thirst. She's still thinking in her mind that this could be the answer to all of my problems. This could be the answer to my daily tasks. This could be the answer to all of the things that I have. Matter of fact, she goes on to say, Nor come here to draw. Remember what her need was in her mind? Acceptance. Remember she wanted the ridicule to go away. She wanted to no longer have to put up with the things that she dealt with when she was with those who despised her, those who talked about her, those things that she heard that was said out in the, in the marketplace that got back to her. She wanted to do away with all that. She saw not only a way for her thirst to be quenched, but for her to no longer have to be in the presence of those negative things in her life. She wanted to avoid the ridicule. She wanted to avoid those sideways looks. She wanted to avoid the gospel. All she wanted from Jesus is for him to fix her physical problem. Church, I tell you, there are a lot of people that come to Jesus for one reason, to fix their physical problems. Jesus is capable, yes, but that is not his mission. <laughs> that is not what he came to do. Matter of fact, if you read the Bible, you will find out that the Bible tells you once you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, your road does not become paved flat. It becomes full of potholes and stones and boulders in your way. Whenever you step out to follow Christ, you stand up against a world that's going to ridicule you, gossip about you, is going to say things that aren't true. They're going to do things to humiliate you. There are going to be brothers and sisters in Christ that fall, that rub off on you and make your witness look bad. There are going to be all kinds of things that happen in your life that are going to be difficulties. And each of those things are going to make you either grow more like Christ or give up on Christ. See, fixing your physical problem, it's a serendipity of knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The thing that he fixes is the greatest need that you have, that you have no ability to fix outside of him. And that's your eternal destiny. The place that you will spend all of eternity. So the road's a little tough here to 50, 60, 70, 80 years of life. How smooth is the road going to be in heaven? How smooth is eternity going to be? How beautiful is the place that you're going to live? How wonderful is it going to be to have no cares, no concerns for life? How great is it going to be to be in the presence of your Savior forever? Is it worth a few bumps and bruises in this life? I think so. But Jesus knew a real problem. And when Jesus comes to where you are, (laughs) and he comes to you as you are, he'll reveal within you your greatest need. He'll reveal within you your greatest need. Because she had this need for acceptance. She had a need to escape the ridicule in her life. And she had a need for forgiveness of sin in her life that we see that becomes evident in verse 16. We didn't read it earlier, but he says this to her in verse 16. He says to her, go, call your husband, and come here. Find it a little odd. He's hanging out by a well. He's been talking to her about water, saying, I've got water that'll quench your thirst. You'll never thirst again. And she says, hey, how about give me a glass of that water so that I don't ever thirst again. Matter of fact, I don't even have to come by here. And does Jesus ADHD kick in? Did he suddenly see a butterfly go by? And he goes, whoa, pretty butterfly. Hey, where's your husband? It seems a little off topic, doesn't it? Here they've been talking about this physical need. And suddenly Jesus looks at her and says, go. Call your husband and come here. Kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Kind of wonder to yourself, where did that come from? (laughs) Never forget, God knows the things that you think are secret in your life. (laughs) And he knows the sin in your life that is breaking your fellowship with him. He knows that thing that's only done behind closed doors out of the sight of everybody else. He knows that thought that's run through your mind continuously. He knows the words that you've said about others that no other ears have heard. He knows. And one day you may ask him for a glass of water, and he may look at you and say, Go get your husband. Go get your husband. God knows that the first step into coming into fellowship with Jesus Christ is recognizing the sin in your life. And by recognizing the sin in your life, you recognize your need for a Savior. There may be someone here this morning that's been seeking after God for the fix in your physical life, but you've never stopped to realize there's sin in your life that has to be dealt with. Has to be dealt with. And that's where the playing field is absolutely level. There's not a one of us that don't have that problem. How do I know that? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10 says, There is no one righteous. No, not one. Nobody gets a pass. Not the woman at the well. Not the disciples who had run off to town for food. Not the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. Not this preacher. And not you in the pew. Nobody gets a pass. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not one Among us who is righteous. Even though each of our physical needs are great, even though each of our physical needs are different, there is one thing that we all have in common. We have sinned against a holy God and need forgiveness. And Jesus has come to forgive our sin, he says. That living water has come. In Luke 19.10, he says, The Son of Man is coming to seek and to save that which is lost. And what is that which is lost? That which is sinned against a holy God. When Jesus meets you how you are, notice what happens. Verse 17. Verse 17, the woman says, I have no husband. <laughs> I, I have no husband. And Jesus looks at her and says, You've well said. I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you're with now. He's not your husband in that you spoke truly when Jesus meets us where we are. He he convicts us of the sin in our life. That's got us how we are, (laughs) how it's taken us down the wrong road, how it's taken us in a direction that we didn't want to go. And he points us back to the direction that we should be going. Jesus goes straight for the moral sin in her life. He points to that specific sin that is and that has been a part of her life. She's been trying to find this acceptance. She's been trying to find this relationship in the husbands that she's had. She's had five marriages Five marriages. And now she's living in adultery with a man who is not her husband. Seems off point in the conversation to you think about Jesus being the living water. He confronts the sin in her life. The greatest need any of us have in our life is to be loved and she had chosen to seek that love through physical relationships as many of us have. Some have chosen to seek that, that love and acceptance through intoxicants in our life so that we don't notice that the, the world's not right. We stupefy ourselves with alcohol or drugs or whatever it may be. We sit in front of a television as if the world doesn't exist and we live through that which we see there. We go on the internet and we have conversations with people we'll never meet about things we should never talk about. We do all kinds of things. We try to excel in our jobs so that we're accepted at work. We try to excel at homes so that we're accepted by our wives. We try to excel in church so that we're accepted by our fellow church members. But understand this. God created us, yes, to have relationships with each other. But it all starts in a right relationship with Him. Until the relationship with Him is right, the relationship horizontally will never be right. Never. Why five husbands? No vertical relationship with God. You see, the Samaritan woman had tried to fill a relationship void with men in her life. But the problem is, God created marriage, not man. God created marriage, not man. And any marriage is not a godly marriage, is a marriage that will not fill any void Will, in fact, create voids. God says marriage is to be between one man and one woman. God said marriage is to be the joining of two people into one flesh. God said marriage is not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. Marriage is to be an example of Christ and His church. You know, there'll be a day that we'll be joined, the bride and the bridegroom. One day we'll be joined. And the marriage here on earth is to be an example of that. God never intended for the church to have such a casual understanding and relationship as we do with Jesus. It was to be much like marriage. We we were to be awaiting the marriage day and to purify and to keep ourselves in preparation for that. We were to look forward to that day. We were to look forward to the day that we saw him. And we were joined together. Yet we've become casual. For her to be living with a man that's not her husband tells me one thing. That one or both of them weren't real big on commitments. They weren't real big on commitments. The problem in our world, and unfortunately our church today, is that we take marriage too lightly. Both the marriage of Christ in the church and the marriage in the world. We really do. When a man and a woman come before God and the witnesses that are gathered there, they're saying that we want to join our lives together in holy matrimony. Holy matrimony. It's a worship service. It's a worship service to God. They're giving a picture of the holy matrimony between Christ and the church. It's not a legal ceremony. It does have legal ramifications. But it is a worship service to an almighty God that created that thing called marriage. And It's pointed towards the day that that we will be married Young people need to understand that marriage is a trifold contract. It's between a man, a woman, and God. It's not just a man and a woman deciding to be joined. Marriage is between a man, a woman, and God. Jesus confronted the sin of immorality in this woman's life when he met her, where she was, and how she was. Brings to mind a passage of Scripture quickly come to a close. Matthew 7, 13, and 14. It says this, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, for there are few who find it. When you drink of the living water, your way moves from broad to difficult. Your gate moves from wide to narrow. But Jesus promised one thing about that difficult path and that narrow gate. When you entered it, you were entering into life. When you walk the wide path, you're walking a path towards death. You may say, Pastor, I hear you talking about this moral sin of marriage and the problems. I don't have that sin in in my life. It's not about the sin. It's about sin, period. It's about sin, period. God does not grade sin. I hope you understand that. You don't score an A for good ones and a D for bad ones. Sin is sin. Any sin is a sin against the Holy God. And the Bible tells us that God hates sin. He doesn't say that he hates the big ones and lets the little ones ease by. He says he hates sin. No matter how big, no matter how small, God hates it. Remember how sin entered the garden? In the garden? Remember? It was a question. Did God really say that? Did God really mean that? Would God really want you not to have that? It entered as man started questioning what God said. As man decided, they may know a little more than God. As they decided, they wouldn't mind being a little like God. As I thought about how sin entered the world, how if I was sitting by the well, if I was walking to a well where Jesus was sitting, and Jesus asked me for a cup of water, and I said, yes, it goes on to tell me how If you knew who I was, you'd ask me for the cup of water that would last you for all of eternity. And when I looked at him and said, give me that, because I'd love to have it, because I don't want to come back here anymore and listen to this. I don't want to go there and see this anymore. I don't want to be a part of this. Give me that water so I could just go home and drink it and be good. What would he say to me? He obviously wouldn't ask me to go get my husband, but what would he say to me? What would he say to you? What would be the thing in your heart? Whatever you said, give me the water to meet my physical needs. What did he say? Go get. Think about Proverbs. I'm going to read it really quickly. Proverbs 6, 12-15 says this, A worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth. He winks with his eye. He shuffles his feet. He points with his finger. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. He sows discord. Therefore, his calamity shall come suddenly. Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. I love this Proverbs. In my quiet time with God this morning at this altar, God revealed this passage to me, and I went back and quickly jotted it down in my notes. I'm going to fly through. It explains itself. It's the beauty of this proverb, and it speaks directly to what God might say to you at the well. See, verse 16 through 19 explain what was said in 12 through 15. For it says in verse 16, these things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. It says there are some things that he hates and there's this abomination. Abomination means it causes disgust. What's the first thing it says in verse 17? It says a proud look, (laughs) a proud look, thinking we're better than others, thinking we know better than other people know thinking that everything that happens should revolve around me. (laughs) He goes on to the second part of that 17th verse. It says, a lying tongue. Have you ever thought about your tongue was created by God to glorify God? If you use it for anything else, it's not being used for its intended purpose. See, (laughs) we're most unlike God when we use our tongue to lie because you're made in the image of God. Your tongue is made by God for His glory. Use it to tell a lie. You're being ungodly. He goes on in 17c to say, Hands that shed innocent blood. Every life is a gift from God. Whether it's in a womb or whether it's been born. Every life is a gift from God. Every person is made by God in God's image. We respect each other's life because of their life's maker, who is God. It is time that America realizes abortion is going to be judged. Church, it's time we realize silence about abortion is going to be judged. The hand of God will judge those who kill the life he creates. And it's time we stand up and say, you say it's right, God says it's wrong. And we'll stand on thus what God says. In verse 18, he says, a heart that devises wicked plans. Our hearts are to be on the plans of God, not plans that we make. We are to use what God has given us as our gifts and talents accordingly to his plan, not our Plan. It says in the 18th verse, feet that are swift in running to evil. That's something that just makes God sick. Feet that are swift. We're, we're not supposed to devise evil plans, and we're certainly not supposed to be quick to act evil. You may say, I don't act evil. Yes. Yes. When you do anything God hasn't told you to do, or you don't do something God has told you to do, you're being evil. There's no way around it. You're either doing righteousness or you're doing unrighteousness. We need to not be swift to do unrighteousness. Guess what? We also don't need to be swift to see what's being done in the unrighteous world. Let a fire truck pass. We all want to go see where the fire's at. We need to realize that we don't have to be in the news realm trying to solve the world's news problems. We don't need to be trying to solve these other things. We need to be telling people about Jesus. If they come to know Jesus, those things take care of themselves. He says in verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies. There's no room, no room in the body of Christ for a second truth. There's only one. And there it is. Anything other than this, lie. Don't know any other way to put it. We don't need a second truth. There's only one truth, it's God's Word. We should be speaking this in our mouth, not what we think. It says in verse 19, At the end, one who sows discord among the brethren. I find it interesting that it says there's six things he hates, the seventh he abhors. One who sows discord among your brethren. And we should be about speaking the truth about others also. The truth to others and the truth about others. There's no benefit to the body of Christ or the kingdom for a false witness about your brother or sister in Christ. There is no place for it. It brings reproach to the body. It gives a bad witness to the world. It takes the focus off of Jesus Christ. And you don't know the lives you're ruining. You don't know the minds you're affecting. You don't know the spiritual condition that you're putting people in when you choose to talk about them with lies. The body of Christ should speak the truth to the world. and should speak the truth about each other. We're to be one body. Paul said in Ephesians 4 that we are one body, one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. How would you like to know that somebody didn't like a part of your body and was just going to cut it off for you? That's what happens when you sow discord in the body. Why is unity in the body so critical? And I'll close with this. Unity in the body is critical because you are showing the world you're Jesus. When the internal workings of the church are in disarray, why would anybody want to know the God of that church? I don't know anybody that wants to come into discord. They want to be a part of unity. Can there be conversations? Can there be things worked out? Absolutely, but it's done in love as the Word says. It gives us opportunity when we're unified to show the way. The way. You see, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Living water, point number one, (laughs) changes our way and it leads us to show others the way. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.